We have a fairly new term to describe someone who excels. The term is a goat. And when I first heard this term, I kind of did a double take. Being called a goat sounds like a negative thing to me. I don't want somebody to refer to me as a goat. But this is a, there's an acronym. Uh, it stands for the greatest of all time. So if you look up online, who are, who's an example of a goat? You'll find names like Muhammad Ali, Jack Nicholas, Michael Jordan, and Tom Brady. And while the term goat might be new to us, this whole question and this whole debate of who's the greatest is not new in any way. Uh, in fact, in the passage we're looking at today, the disciples are arguing about this. Who's the greatest? And we're going to discover this morning what greatness looks like in God's kingdom. So if you would please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. If you would please stand in honor of the reading of God's word, if you are able I am going to begin reading in verse 30, and just a reminder, this is the very inspired Word of God. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Let's pray. Father, there is something inside of us that admires greatness. There is something inside of us that wants to be great, and yet we are reminded from your word this morning that greatness looks very different in your kingdom than the kingdom of man. So I pray you'll use our time together this morning to conform us to become more like Jesus, and therefore great the way you define greatness. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So in verse 30, it says, They went on from there. It's referring to the northern region of Israel. This is where they've been, what we've been talking about the past few weeks with the different, uh, the transfiguration and the confession. And last week, Jesus uh, healing the man who was demon-possessed, or healing the boy, rather, and now it says, verse 33, they stop at Capernaum. Capernaum is sort of the headquarters of Jesus' ministry. There's a house there, Peter's house, where he would often go and often stay. But it says that Jesus says, don't tell anybody that we're here. Basically, his public ministry in, in Galilee has ended. This is where he spent most of his time, most of his public ministry in Galilee, but now that's over. He's going to spend the rest of chapter 9 just with the disciples in the house, training them, equipping them. And chapter 10, verse 1, he's heading to Jerusalem. 
And he knows why he's heading there. He knows what's coming in Jerusalem. He knows he's going there to die. And it's time to go to the cross now. And he tells him this. He knows this. Verse 31, he says, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. There's three times he predicts this in Mark's gospel. This is the second of the three. Verse 32 tells us they, the disciples did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask. And I just want to point out, we are often like this. When we start to hear bad news, we often kind of shut down. If you hear bad news, like your loved one just got a bad diagnosis, you tend to say, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to think about that. Or some people, when they hear, receive news that their loved one has died, they'll say, I don't believe that. There's a, there's a period of denial often. I, don't, I, I can't cognitively process that right now. Oftentimes, we don't want to go to the doctor because we kind of intuitively know what we're going to hear when we go to the doctor. So instead of going and actually getting a proper diagnosis so we can properly treat it, we will often say, I, I just don't want to know that right now. I'm, I'm living life fine right now. Let's just, I don't want to hear any negative diagnoses right now. And I think the disciples are doing something similar. We don't want to hear that right now. You know, you just perform this incredible miracle. Let's just glory in this. And there's a lot that they need to come to learn. And the lesson they're going to learn today is a lesson about greatness. What does it look like to be great in God's kingdom? And I want to highlight from our text several relationships and talk about what greatness looks like in the midst of these relationships. So here's the first one. Greatness and one another. What does greatness look like among us? Uh, the disciples and Jesus made the trip from northern Israel. They're now in the house. In verse 33, Jesus says, Hey, what were you guys discussing along the way while we were coming? I heard, I heard you talking. I overheard you. What were you talking about? And by the way, that's a good way to do discipleship. You kind of ask people, What's on your mind? What are you thinking about lately? What are you reading about? What's God teaching you? It's a good way to kind of enter into where a person is. And Jesus does this. In verse 34, he, we learned that they were discussing who is the greatest among them. The Greek word is the word mega. Who was the most mega among them? I just want to point out, this is a typical conversation for guys to have. We like talking about things like this, comparing and contrasting and who's better. You know, on Father's Day, I'll, I'll point this out. Uh, guys like having discussions like this. You know, who's better? LeBron James or Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods or Jack Nicklaus, Muhammad Ali or Mike Tyson, uh, Tom Brady, Joe Montana, or Peyton Manning, right? And ladies, some of your husbands right now are getting riled up just hearing these names, you know? They think I shouldn't even be mentioning one of these names in the context of the other. That's how passionate they are about this, you know? There's just something inside of us. We like competition. We like who won, who's better. Especially you hang around younger guys, you know, 14-year-olds, and they're going to talk a lot. They're going to talk about who's better among them, like who's faster, who's stronger, who can bench more. You know, if we had a wrestling match, who would win? And you hang around long enough, and somebody's going to challenge. Like, oh, yeah? <laughs> I challenge you on that. And they, they, they like doing this. And the disciples are no different. Normal guys, arguments about normal things guys argue about, who's the greatest? And I can't help but think, that Peter, James, and John just got to go up with Jesus on top of the mountain and see him in his transfiguration. And I wonder if that experience precipitates some of this discussion about greatness. Like, 
if you're one of the other nine disciples, why did they get to go and experience this incredible experience? And we have to stay down here dealing with the crowds. And I wonder if Peter, James, and John didn't help the matter. A little, you know, like, oh man, you guys don't know what you missed out on. We just saw Jesus transfigured. Wow. I wonder why he didn't invite you guys to go. <laughs> I wonder why we got the invitation and you didn't. Hmm, it's kind of curious. I wonder what it was about us. Right? And Jesus says, hey, wh- wh- what were you guys talking about? And I think that they've learned enough to know when Jesus asks that kind of question, this is usually a teaching opportunity. And Jesus uses it as a teaching opportunity. Verse 35, he says, hey, guys, if you want to be great, if you want to be the greatest, you have to be last. And I'm sure they sort of looked at each other like, oh, boy, this is one of those weird sayings, mysterious, nebulous you know, what does that mean? If I want to be first, I have to be last? I mean, what does that, what, how does practically, what does that look like? And Jesus gives them something a little more concrete in verse 35. He says, you have to be a servant. You have to be a servant of all. You have to serve others. That's what it means to be great. You be a servant. Now, why would that be a value? That seems counterintuitive. Why would a value be, I need to be a servant? And the answer is, look at Jesus. Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we're merely following the example of Jesus. We're merely valuing what Jesus clearly valued. And I just want to point out, these guys don't get it. Uh, You just look over at chapter 10, and you got James and John coming up to Jesus, and Matthew tells us their mother was with them. And she's like, hey, can my son sit at your right and left hand when you come back in glory? You know, it's all about first. Who gets to be in charge? Who gets to sit at Jesus' right and left hand? And Jesus says, y'all are clueless. You don't know what you're asking for. You don't know what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. Greatness looks like who's the one who sacrifices. Greatness looks like who's the one who humbles himself. Greatness looks like who's the one who's serving among you. That's the one who's great. And I just want to point out, this goes against everything within us. Our natural instinct is not usually to serve. You know, if you had a choice, you get to sit at a restaurant and eat dinner today, or you get to be the one who serves at the restaurant and serves people who eat today. You know, what are you going to sign up for? All things being equal. I know what I would be inclined to sign up for. If we said, you get to be the one who gets to sit there and have your boots cleaned by somebody... Or you get to be the one who gets down on your hands and knees and cleans boots. Like, what are you signing up for? You get to be the one who gets to have somebody come in and clean your house. Or you get to be the one who goes in and cleans somebody's house and all their mess, right? Instinctively, intuitively, surely the one who's greater is the one who gets their house cleaned, who gets their boots cleaned, who gets to sit at the table eating and not getting served. And Jesus is just turning the value system upside down. Do you want to be great in my kingdom? You got to serve God's people. And my question for you this morning is this, are, are you? Are you serving the body? Are you serving one another? Is there any area you could point to in your life and say, here's an example of where I'm taking my energy, my talents, my experience, my passions, and I'm serving God's people in this context. In our mission statement, serve is one of the four key words. We want to make disciples who worship, connect, serve, and impact. Serve 
The way we use that word, we mean serving here, serving God's people at Vista Grande Baptist Church, taking your energy, talents, resources, and using them, leveraging them for the sake of God's people. And if you're not doing that, I have a nice, easy way for you to do that. A simple way, I should say. Easy is not the right word. A simple way for you to serve. Next week, we are going to two services. We're really excited about it. We're so excited, we've already got the chairs laid out. And, uh, and, and with the two services come some needs. We need people to help us greeting. We're, we're, we're seeing a lot of new faces, and we're so grateful for that. We need people to help us find visitors and how are you doing? Thank you for being here. Can we help you find your way around the building? Uh, we need that. We need greeters. We need ushers to help in here, help people find a seat and get everything they need. Uh, we need valet parking. That's going to return. We need people to help senior adults in particular uh, be able to drop off at the front and somebody can help them park a little further away and do the walking. And so if you are interested in serving in one of these areas, I just want to point out, you're probably already here. I hope you're already here because you're worshiping. So you're here. You're already committed to be here. You might as well just tag on a little bit of serving while you're here. Really simple, really easy. Um, and it's a good opportunity, a good way to serve, and we have great needs. So if you're interested in learning more, please reach out to Devin Knuckles and let him know. You can talk to him after service. You can email him, and we would love to get you involved in serving. Second, Let's talk about greatness and little ones. Look at verse 36. Jesus took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. So Jesus is talking about greatness. Greatness is marked by serving one another, and Jesus presses it a little further, and he says, I'm going to give you an illustration, actually an object lesson, an acted-out illustration. And Jesus calls a child over to him. Hey, come over here. And Jesus takes the child in his arms. Once again, we see a picture of the tenderness of Jesus. Picks the child up, holds him. Says, you want to be great? You've got to receive little ones like this. You've got to put children first. If you want to serve, if you want to be great in the kingdom, you're going to serve. And by serving, I mean serving little ones. Little ones who are typically at the back of the line, not at the front of the line. See, in our culture, we have two extremes. Some people put kids right in the middle of everything. They are, they are idolized. They're everything. The world revolves around kids. And this is not healthy. It's not healthy for kids. It's not healthy for parents. I think it was James Dobson. I think I remember reading or hearing this somewhere along the way who said, you know, sometimes we kind of joke and speak lightly about spoiling our kids and our grandkids. He said, spoiled things are not good. You know, you have a little spoiled milk. You don't say, oh, look how cute the spoiled milk is, you know. Well, just drink a little bit. You can't even smell it. Like, throw it out, you know. You don't want spoiled kids. Spoiled kids get thrown out, right? You want healthy kids, and healthy kids are taught the world does not revolve around you, right? The world revolves around the Lord. But there's another extreme that Jesus is warning against here, and that is because children are younger and smaller, they tend to be at the back of the line. They tend to be seen as sort of nuisances who kind of get in the way. And they're not overly valued. And Jesus is saying, in the kingdom of God, we value everyone, even little ones. Even little ones that the world might look at and kind of turn their nose up at and say, they kind of get in the way. And this is a, an indictment against our culture. Our culture, I think it's fairly clear, does not value children. One way we see this is a declining birth rate. 
Six years in a row, we've had a declining birth rate in our country. 2020 was the lowest birth rate we've had in our nation's history from when we kept track of these things. People don't value having kids. Why not? Probably, it's just, you know, they don't want the, the responsibility. So people are putting off marriage. I'm not going to get married. I want to play. I want to go make a bunch of money. I want to get a bunch of toys. I want to have big boats and nice cars. I don't want to be tied down in marriage and children. You know, it's hard. Children are a nuisance, right? And so this is the, this is the mindset of our culture, putting off marriage, putting off having children, and the birth rate continues to decline, and it reveals a couple things. One, it's an unhealthy set of values, and number two, it says something about where we're headed. Like, where is a society headed that doesn't value children, It doesn't value the next generation? I'll give you an example. You look at the pattern in Europe. Europe is following this pattern. Europeans are not getting married. Europeans are not having children. But guess who is in Europe? Who does value family and does value marriage and does value having lots of children? Muslims. So what does the future look like of the Western world in five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years? It's gonna look like an Islamic country, an Islamic nation. So. One way, one practical way for Christians to reach the world for Christ and to do evangelism is, guess what? Have children, <laughs> right? Have children, procreate, and adopt. Adopt children, have children. Since it's Father's Day, I want to say to those of you who are fathers, way to go. <laughs> you had children, you adopted children, way to go. You procreated, good job. You're following the biblical admonition here. And now we're told, verse 37, receive them in Jesus' name. So it's not just have children, you've done your job, I'm done. <laughs> have children, adopt children, and then receive them in Jesus' name. What does that mean? I think verse 42 gives us a little bit of a clue what it looks like to receive these little ones in Jesus' name. Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So one of the ways we receive children in Jesus' name is don't cause them to sin. And I don't think that merely means don't entice them to sin. You know, there's not too many fathers who are coming to church, bringing their kids to church, who are trying to entice their children to sin. So, but I think there's a proactive, a more positive way that we could be guilty of this, and that is we're not training them, instructing them, bringing them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord so that they do fear the Lord and honor the Lord. Enticing your kids to sin not only is not tempting them and holding things out that are unhealthy for them, training your children in the Lord, receiving them in the name of the Lord is also raising them up in a godly manner, in a godly household, training them, teaching them, discipling them, teaching them. Uh, one of the small things we try to do at our house on Sundays when we get home from church, we're eating lunch together, is we try to talk about the sermon. Did you hear anything interesting? Did you learn anything? And it always makes for interesting conversation. But what the goal is just to have some conversation. It doesn't have to be overly profound. It doesn't have to be overly prepared just having conversation with your children about God's Word. Just, if you're not doing it at all, just starting somewhere, just opening up the Bible, maybe even Mark, and just reading it and say, what do you think? Do you have thoughts? Do you have questions? And it's hard for me 
because I like everybody to be sitting and quiet and still, and I, you know, want to get into this big theological discussion. And of course, there's water being spilled over here, and there's a girl over here doing cartwheels, and you know, it's it's hard. And my wife always has to remind me, like, you know, it's just little things, just little nuggets. And my encouragement to you is just do something. If you're doing nothing, do something. It doesn't have to be overly prepared, overly planned. Just talk about God's Word. What does this mean? How do we apply this? How do we do this? And uh, this is a part of what it means to to be great as it relates to little ones. Um, I also want to point out that little ones in this passage, in particular, are children. But I think there's a principle here where little ones could just be anyone in society who's not able to get to the front of the line. You know, look out for those who are unable to get to the front of the line first. Perhaps mentally handicapped folks are a little less quick to be able to get to the front. I think the point is, you want to be great in God's kingdom? Watch out for little ones. Watch out for those who are not as able to get to the front of the line. Serve them. Let them go first. Look out for their interests. Look out for their needs. This is what it looks like to be great in the kingdom of God. Third, let's talk about greatness and others, how we relate to others outside of our group. Look at verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. So think about the context. Jesus has just called them out for arguing with each other about who's greatest. Last week he got onto them because they couldn't exercise the demon. The week before that, uh, you know, Jesus said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. And now John thinks he has an example of something they've done that they've gotten right. And John's like, Hey, Jesus, uh, we were walking by and we saw a man cast out a demon. He's not one of us, one of the twelve. So we told him he doesn't need to be doing that. We were right in that, weren't we? And Jesus is like, No. <laughs> You're still learning. You're still a work in progress. No. If he's not against us, then he's for us. And there's a principle here. Like don't, don't, it's a principle about how we relate to other people, other groups, other Christians outside of our group. There's some principles we learn here. And I just want to point out two extremes that we need to avoid. One extreme is the extreme of the disciples. They wanted to draw the line a little too close. It's us for and no more. It's just us, right? We told him he needs to stop. He's not one of us. And Jesus says, no, if he's not against us, then he's for us, right? The other extreme that we don't necessarily see in this passage, but we see Jesus teaching about, and I think it's related to this issue, in Matthew 12, 30, Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. Jesus says, if you're not with me, You're my enemy. You are against me. So I assume that means the man who is casting out the demon is with Jesus. Otherwise, Jesus would say, if he's not with me, he's against me. So the man is with Jesus. How? To what extent? When did that happen? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But I think we can conclude some principles from this. One principle is there is a point where we have to draw a line and say, they're not with us. We are very different. We are not on the same team here. Therefore, we can't partner together with you. 
We have to be willing to draw lines and say, there's us and there's them. But we also learn the principle here from this passage, we, we don't need to draw the line too close. You know, it's only us, and we're not going to partner with anybody outside of our circle. Now, how do you know? How do we draw the line? Where do we draw the line? How do we know? I like to point out that I think there's sort of three levels or three categories of doctrinal issues. And I've, I've talked about this before, so I'm going to be pretty brief here this morning. But there's sort of three levels that we should think about. Level one, these are essential doctrines, essential beliefs. A person has to affirm these to be a Christian. And we're, we only want to partner with groups that affirm unapologetically these level one issues. Issues like the Trinity. Issues like the deity of Christ. Issues like salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. These are level one issues you have to affirm these things to be a Christian. And if you don't affirm these things, you're not with us. And we're not with you in that sense. Level two issues, Christians can disagree about, but we're probably going to need to form two different churches over these. They're significant enough where we're going to need to form two different churches and be two different groups. But they're not so significant that we would want to say these people are not Christians. What are examples of these? Uh, one example would be, you know, to what extent we exercise or practice the charismatic gifts in particular in corporate worship. Like, are we going to speak in tongues on Sunday morning or are we not? Groups are going to have to form different churches over that issue. You can't sort of have a hybrid, <laughs> you know, that's not going to work. Uh, are we going to baptize infants or are we not? You're going to have to form two different churches. You either do it or you don't. You either believe it's biblical or you don't. And we're not saying other groups that baptize infants are not necessarily Christians. We're just saying we feel too strongly about this issue. We need to form two different churches over this. We'll still call you brother as long as you affirm the level one issues. But this is too significant. Level three issues are issues that we can agree to disagree about and still stay in the same church and still partner together. Examples would include your view of the end times. There's four different evangelical views. You can affirm any of these four and be a member in good standing at our church. This is not a litmus test. When you come to join our church, we don't say, are you all mill, pre-mill, post-mill? Right? We want a written report on what you are. It's not a litmus test for joining our church. Right? Another example would be, what precise role does politics play in the church? What's our, what, what role does politics have in a church? And, and how do we prioritize our political issues? You know, like, which, this issue, is it number one for you, number three for you, number five for you, number ten for you? We're, we're probably all over the map on this. And that's okay. We don't say, you've got to see this exactly the way I see it in order to join our church. So, some people tend to say, you know, all issues are really level three issues. Let's just agree to disagree and let's just go do good in the world. And that's the extreme of liberalism. Theological liberalism says every issue is a third level issue. Let's not get into issues. Let's not debate. Let's not worry about words and doctrine. It's just doctrine. Let's just agree to disagree and let's just go do good in the world. But Jesus is saying here, I mean, in this passage, when he says, whoever is not with me is against me, I mean, there's a time when you've got to draw a line and say, no, we've got to have some clarity, definitions, doctrine. These people are with us, and these people are not with us. We will partner with these folks. We will not partner with those folks. We ha that's a part of biblical faithfulness is doing that. It's hard, and it's sometimes not fun. And for some people, it absolutely drains them, and they don't get it. 
but it's necessary to be a faithful church. Um, but the other extreme sees every issue as a level one issue. Like everything is worth fighting over. Every issue, we gotta have a big debate about it. And if you don't agree with us on any issue, you're against us. And I just wanna point out, Jesus is warning against that. He's not, he's not against me, therefore he's for me. He's not against us, therefore he's for us. Not every issue is a level one issue. That's the, that's the extreme of fundamentalism. Fundamentalism wants to say, every issue is level one. If you don't agree with us on everything, we have nothing to do with you. And that's why fundamentalistic churches tend to not partner with other churches because no other church is pure enough for them, right? And they tend to just kind of keep splintering off because it just becomes more and more issues. And, uh, and, 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 and they tend to see themselves, we're the pure ones and you're not pure enough for us. And so there's a constant dividing line. And this seems to me like an appropriate time to talk about the fact that we as a church are partnered together right now with about 47,000 other churches in a denomination that's called the Southern Baptist Convention. I was able to go to the annual meeting this past week. I was in a room with 16,000 people, which is kind of incredible to be in a room, a single room with 16,000 people. Are there differences among these 47,000 churches? Absolutely. I mean, are there differences among us in this room right now? <laughs> Absolutely, right? So are there some differences among the 47,000 churches? Yes, there are. But the, I, I get the sense, and I'm confident, that there is great unity among the churches around the level one and level two issues. And you say, well, who gets to define those? Our doctrinal statement lays those out. You look at our doctrinal statement, the Baptist faith and message, and you'll find what are the level one and level two issues if, if our doctrinal statement takes a position on it, that's a really good indication it's either a level one or level two issue. We know level three issues because our doctrinal statement doesn't speak to them and doesn't take a position on them. And it's, I think it's healthy and good that we would partner with other churches as long as they're like-minded on level one and level two issues because through partnering with other churches, we are able to do very important things such as provide theological training through our seminaries for a pretty reasonable price and it's good quality education, right? And therefore, we're able to train up the next generation so we're able to send them out so they can do things like church planting in North America and church planting around the world through international missions. So I think it's, it's worth the hard work of partnering together with other people as long as they're like-minded on level one and level two issues so we can accomplish the mission that we have before us. And I think this is something that's related to what Jesus is talking about here with our relationship with others. And this brings us forth to talk about greatness and the gospel. Why in the world would we want to bother ourselves with partnering with other people? It's hard work. It's difficult. We might disagree with them on some things. Why would we want to bother ourselves with looking out for little ones and helping people get to the front of the line when I can get there first? Why would we want to bother ourselves with worrying about each other? Why should I look out for your interests or be concerned about you and not just be concerned about me? Like, how do I get motivated to get down on my hands and knees and serve you when intuitively I want to be served? And I think the answer is we need to go back to the very beginning of the passage. Look at verse 31. Look at the way this whole passage got started. For Jesus was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. 
And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. Notice the word delivered. It's a very important word. Jesus says, I am going to be delivered, handed over. Handed over by whom? There's a couple ways we could answer that. Several ways, actually. Judas plays a role. Uh, the Jewish leadership plays a role. The Roman government plays a role. But ultimately, who's the key player? Who's the key character in the story who hands him over, who delivers him over? And the answer is God the Father. The Greek word for delivered or handed over is paradidomi. It's the same word that we see in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. God the Father gave over his son, delivered him over to be punished for us. The punishment that you and I deserve because of our sins, the Father served us and loved us by giving over his son, so the son takes the penalty, so you and I might not have to. And the son accepts the mission. From eternity past, the son accepts the mission, and the son though he exists in glory with the Father and always has, willingly enters in as a servant to serve us and to be delivered over as a criminal, to die a criminal's death for us. Consider that this is the same one who existed with the Father in glory as the King of Kings, who is in fact the King of Kings, and yet he laid it aside temporarily to come as a servant, to serve, to get down on his hands and knees and wash feet, to go to the cross where he would wash us of our sins. And his greatness is seen not just in his preexistent glory, his greatness is seen as he's humbling himself and serving us. The world wants us to look at athletes and say, now there's greatness. There's the greatest of all time right there. But the Bible looks at Jesus hanging on a cross, bleeding and dying, and says, there's greatness. And Jesus says to us, take up your cross and follow me. Follow me by serving one another. Follow me by looking out for the needs of the little ones. Follow me as you partner with others. How can I get motivated to do that? Look at Jesus who served you. Mark 10, 45, he didn't come to be served. He came to serve. The king of kings didn't come to be served. He came to serve you and to give his life as a ransom for you. Picture Jesus on his hands and knees serving you. He went even further than that. He went to the cross to serve you. Are you trusting him for it? He came to serve you. Are you experiencing the benefits of that? Are you trusting him for it? Are you believing him for it? Make sure you believe in him. And then let that be what motivates you to get up and go and serve someone else and be great in the kingdom of God. Let me pray for us. Father, we confess to you our natural instinct is not humility. Our natural instinct is not service. Our natural instinct is not looking out for the needs of little ones who are slower to get to the front of the line. But Father, we're reminded this morning we are the little ones. And you came to love us and you came to serve us and you served us in the most incredible ultimate way through sending your Son who was delivered over for our sake unto death, paying the penalty for our sin. He came not to be served but to serve.
I pray every person in this room and every person watching online would go to Jesus and be served. Let Jesus serve them by washing them, washing them of their sin and bringing them in and making them your sons and your daughters. And Father, I pray this would motivate us to turn around and be servants, great servants, who look out for the needs of each other, look out for the needs of the little ones among us, those who are slower to get to the front of the line, and, and, and great in the way we partner with others. Father, I want to pray especially for our fathers. I pray you'll equip them and help them and motivate them to to serve their families, serve their wives, serve their children well. I thank you for so many faithful, wonderful, great fathers that we have here at Vista Grande Baptist Church. I pray they'd have a great day today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.